and welcome to Property Matters here on Dublin South FM. You can contact the show on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn at iPropertyRadio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your host for today is myself, Carol Tallon, and I'm delighted to be joined by Ben Lerner, Managing Director at Lerner Associates. Ben, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show, uh, Carol. Yep, it's been a long time since you managed to catch up properly. Yeah, absolutely. And you are, dare I say it, one of the most interesting intersections of PropTech right now. But before we get into that, I just want to talk through maybe some of your PropTech credentials because you've been immersed in this industry for the past two decades, long before PropTech was even a term. So you might just give us some insight into your background. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. Definitely before PropTech became a term, uh, we were certainly involved in, in property technology or real estate technology. Um, and actually, most real estate technology goes back to around 40 years or so. So some of the incumbents have been around for a lot longer than I have. Um, but yes, I got involved in uh, real estate technology back in 2001. Uh, out of university, I joined uh, what was then my father's business. Um, he had a software business uh, based uh, in uh, England, based in uh, London and in Lincolnshire. And uh, they were providing property management solutions, um, largely to block management, um, but to estate agents and the commercial space as well. Um, he took a back seat when I joined. Uh, I was with what was Cube Global Software for around about 16 years uh, in various um, management roles and leading on strategy and generally helping lead uh, and drive the company forward. And I sold that business in 2017 to MRI Software, one of the leading global players within real estate tech. Um, what made us a little unique uh, at the time was that we, we uh, had the whole gamut and the whole spectrum of real estate tech at that point, anything from investor solutions, uh, corporate occupier solutions in the commercial space, um, through to residential solutions, uh, facilities management solutions, agency solutions, and anything in between. Um, So for me, those 16 years where we got involved in providing solutions, uh, but also opening up international offices, uh, acquiring other companies in the space, both competitors and complementary products, as well as investing in some companies in the space, kind of gave me that intersection between real estate, technology, and the financial side of things. Uh, and that being the case, after I sold the business, um, I opened up an M&A practice focused purely on real estate tech, uh, which is what we do now. So working with buyers of, and sellers of prop tech businesses um, who are looking to move the business on or looking to acquire, um, that's that's the bulk of what we do. We, we get involved in growth capital as well for later stage businesses, but primarily M&A uh, is, is, is what we do at the moment. So yeah, having started out operationally and strategically in real estate tech, certainly moved more into the financial side of things, but it's all I've ever done for the last 21 odd years. Very good. And the M&A side um, of the market is exactly what we want to talk about today. But just because you're here and and I have the opportunity to ask, you know, there aren't many people who've been involved in this industry for decades or this little sector for decades. Um, So you might have a a different perspective on this real estate, uh, um, particularly on the agency side was always seen as quite a technology laggard when it comes to adoption. What's your experience of this? 
Uh, you're absolutely right. Um, they, they generally were a bit behind the, the curve. Um, and, and not only were they behind the curve in actually knowing what's out there and understanding what's out there, but even when they did, they didn't really want to pay for it. And and, and all of that's changing. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time, uh, certainly in my early years working in the industry, uh, actually educating people and, and actually going into people as part of a sale and explaining to them they had a problem or actually saying, look, you know, this is your situation at the moment. We can make that better. Um, and, and that's changed over the last 10 years or so. The last 10 years or, or even five to 10 years, nobody has to really go into, and, and this is not just in, in the agency side of things, but but with the agency as well, nobody goes into a pitch or nobody goes into a company trying to talk about what the problem is or trying to educate them on what property technology is. It, it's a given that tech within real estate works it's a given that it can help the question is is the client or is the customer ready to take it and do they see the the real value in it not just the surface value but certainly we've gone along we've come a long way from educating the market to actually property technology being something that, that everybody uses in some form or another i think that's a really interesting take on it and i suspect that if we were having this conversation two years ago i would tell you that the uk market uh, the, on the agency side then is clearly well ahead of Ireland in terms of adoption because up until two or three years ago certainly our prop tech startups were still having to go in and educate the market and educate on the benefits of technology and sell the value and I think it's really interesting that you touched on even you know the next stage of agency understanding the benefits maybe not seeing the value or not being in a position to pay and the one of the difficulties we have, and I think it's as true in the UK as it is in Ireland, um, this sector has allowed its value to be diminished massively itself. So therefore, when it's trying to upgrade or innovate or take in new technologies, the margin isn't there. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's that's been a problem in, in, in a couple of areas within real estate tech. Agency is one of them where the margins are, are, are very, very slim. Uh, actually, facilities management uh, in the commercial space is another one where the race to the bottom uh, in terms of contracts and the margins, it, it, it doesn't help when you're trying to uh, put in strategic products. It doesn't help when you're trying to um, uh, raise money for capital expenditure, such as software. Um, but uh, yeah, even that's changing. The, certainly in, in the agency side of things, there is definitely an acknowledgement that even with the margins as well they are, real estate tech isn't something that's a cost anymore. It's acknowledged that actually real estate tech is what's going to help you drive down uh, your cost and drive up your margins. And it's gone from being something that I have to pay for and something that I don't really want to do to something that can actually help me, something that's going to help me make money, something that's going to help my business grow. And that shift is part of what we've seen with the education. People don't see it as, as, as a cost. And you find that manifests itself by some of the people actually making the decisions as well. So from low-level users sometimes getting involved in decisions because they're the ones who use it, we're actually seeing IT and tech within real estate coming much higher up the chain, sometimes to board level, even with huge companies. And that's because they recognize that this isn't something that's just about a cost to the business. This is actually something that can really strategically help the business and drive the business forward and lose cost ultimately. Well, we know COVID has obviously been a huge driver over the past two years, but I mean, climate considerations, um, changing ESG 
investing criteria, um, user demand and user expectations. You know, these have all been drivers. What do you see? Because you're you're in a very unique space that you are working with um, startups and scale-ups and established prop tech providers, as well as those who are looking to acquire them and use them and get the benefit of them. So you have a nice, you have a nice perspective, uh, an overview on this. So where have the key drivers come from? So, so the key drivers ultimately uh, are, are a mix of what's going on in, in the world, as well as what's going on in the office. Now, if we take two different areas, if we take uh, obviously the area that we're more focused on here, which is the, the agency and the residential um, sector of technology, without a shadow of a doubt, the key drivers are still uh, what makes the office better, what makes it slicker, uh, what makes the, the, the what drivers the cost down and just makes people's lives easier in the office. That's still the driver. That's always going to be the, uh, the driver. And, and you alluded to this before. At the end of the day, it comes down to how can we get the job done better, quicker, and cheaper. But at the same time, tenant experience and, and the tenant engagement is really, really key uh, in this market. And that's what we're seeing more as well. So things that can drive the efficiency as well as things that can drive tenant engagement. And tenant engagement isn't just about communication. Otherwise, we'd call it tenant communication. Engagement of tenants is actually understanding what drives that tenant. And that's where ESG and all those kind of things come on board as well. So as well as communicating with the tenant, understanding what's important to the tenant and you as a property manager or as an estate agent, actually providing services and running your shop in the way that, that you think your tenants would want to and giving them the outcome uh, to, for what's important for them in terms of the environment, sustainability, and all those kind of things. Uh, on, the, on the commercial side of things, um, and I won't dwell on that for too long, but on the commercial side of things, the, what we're really seeing is the return to work, understanding the office, who's in the office, how they're getting into the office with access control, what do they do when they're in their office? Um, and, and again, that's really important as people look at how the office is going to be used going forward. And at the same time, it's back to sustainability and ESG. How you know how does this office perform? Is it environmentally friendly? Could it be better? Um, and, and, and actually starting with reporting on that so that, that can be managed. So sustainability ESG is, is across both the actual office, the actual buildings, as well as how you manage the tenancies. But certainly what's going on in the world in the office space, the return to work in the in the residential space, just pure efficiencies driving costs down. Those are the key driving factors that we see at the moment. And that, and, and from the buyer's perspective, just to throw one more thing in there, there's a lot of new deep tech that's come along in the past years. So AI, uh, data, those kind of things weren't traditionally used a few years ago. And even the big companies, the big players out there have been providing software and hardware for, for, for umpteen years they don't have the best handle on data and AI because they've never grown up that way. Uh, they've got legacy systems, older systems that do very well on efficiency and all those other things, but they don't have the wherewithal to get really involved with new tech and to really bring it out quickly. So anything that, that's AI and data, uh, even to the big guys, that's really, really important to them because they recognize that they can't always develop that themselves, uh, being an established huge businesses that they are. The data is such a huge consideration and we're definitely going to move on to that next in our discussion. But uh, you touched on something so important, which is this race to the bottom, which is really uh, 
it, it's an issue for the entire sector and it's something that, that's been recognised um, over the past decade and there was a genuine concern as to where can that lead? That can't lead to anywhere good in terms of um, the quality and the professionalism within the sector. But actually those two things, those two trends that you really highlighted there in terms of community, you know, tenant engagement, um, but also in terms of the experience, the experiential side of real estate, um, between community and experience, might they be actually the, the saviors, the antidote to this race to the bottom? Is it giving uh, facilities managers, letting agents, estate agents a new differentiator? Uh, it, it is, but unfortunately, that doesn't necessarily reduce the cost, which is a big thing for them as well. So absolutely, community is 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 definitely uh, something that's a big differentiator. And actually, we, we see in, in, in the wider, uh, well, we see that in the UK, we see in Europe, I'm sure you see it in Ireland as well. But ultimately, um, the, where, where we look at the PRS industry, the private rental sector, built to rent, all those kind of things, which actually come originally from the US. I mean, at the end of the day, they're variations on multifamily and community community living. Um, and, and partly that's come from the US because a lot of the investments come from the US. So it's actually some of the big US players together with their financial backing coming into our markets. But generally speaking, um, the, the community living is definitely a differentiator and those who can do it well uh, definitely have an edge. But ultimately that doesn't reduce the cost. So there are there are ways that it can reduce the cost by pending what depending on what you can offer within the communities. And yes, you can offer promotions, you can offer discounts and all those kind of things might help uh, differentiate. But from the property management perspective, uh, the only thing that can really help them with all of that is having the right tech behind that, which can automate that and really run it. If it's automated and really run well, then they, then they can provide that differentiation without a huge cost attached to it. it. To be able to provide that without tech is just a huge cost to them. And, and those are the three key elements. It, there's, there's, you know, what, what drives the tenant, and that's community, as well as ESG, sustainability, and all those kind of things, as well as cost. What drives the property manager? Generally, at the end of the day, the profit. Uh, for all, they'll talk about community engagement and sustainability and all those kind of things. That's all fine and well. But the, but the business exists to make a profit. And you've got to put all that into the bag. The only thing really that can hold all that together is tech. Yeah. The and better I think, tech is and the better that's run, the more likely you see you better you, to see better results. Uh, I, I think you articulated well. It's not just about the technology. It's about the right technology. And I think arguably five years ago, the industry wasn't very good at identifying and recognizing the right technology. Has that improved? That has, and there's various uh, people and partnerships out there that can help with those kind of kind of things. But it's not just about the technology itself. You can have the best technology. It's also about implementing it the right way, and that's having the right kind of people, the right culture. All of those things need to be involved. So you can have one guy banging a drum within a huge organization about technology. You're not going to get anywhere. It has to be the culture within the organization, top down, bottom up. And it has to be the right people implementing it. Uh, just just signing a purchase order for technology is not going to help. Uh, it, it, so it needs to be well managed. It needs to be well thought out. And and, and as you say, you know, there's, there's consultants and people out there who can help understand what's right for a particular company. But you've got to pull that into the mix. Technology for technology's sake doesn't work either. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a really fair point. Um, at the start of the interview, I mentioned that you are in perhaps one of the most interesting, interesting spaces in PropTech right now. Um, for the last six years, I've been involved in, in putting together these trends for the new year, you know, new PropTech and construction technology trends for the new year. And for the past three years, uh, mergers, acquisitions, um, increased increased collaboration in a number of different ways whether it's manager buyout or otherwise that that was seen as as a key trend and um, certainly in the last two years that has absolutely proven to be the case it's been one of the biggest things that's impacting um this very small sector you know we're seeing the the collaboration um we're seeing uh, market leaders being acquired, which is having a knock-on effect. Maybe who's acquiring them might actually dictate then who will become their customer base. So can you can you talk to us about? And I know um, obviously some of the details of, of recent deals will be confidential, but um, you know, just uh, I, I think last summer you had a really busy summer, a time that people would think is maybe generally not very busy in the sector. You had a really busy time um, with uh, working and closing three mergers uh, and acquisitions in the space of three weeks? Yeah, um, we did. And actually, 2021 was a really busy year all round. Um, was it, uh, uh, you know, three three deals closing in the space of three weeks uh, is still nine months, uh, sometimes uh, in preparation for that, or, or six months in some cases. Um, you know, they, they don't start and finish in those three weeks, that's for sure. Um, but, but, but yes, uh, th- there's definitely going to be more consolidation. And that's not necessarily a PropTech-specific thing. It's just a sign of, of the maturity with, with within the space. Um, what is a project specific thing is, if you think about, take a step back, and particularly in residential, more than commercial, and think about how PropTech came about, how these solutions came about, it's generally speaking in the residential space, everybody has either been a tenant or a landlord, they've occupied property in some way or another, and everybody who's lived in a, in a, in a house or rented out a house or a property or a flat or whatever it might be, thinks they've got a better way of doing it. And, and, and therefore, you've had so many solutions coming up over the years purely because of it, it, it's something that talks to people. It's such a big part of our life, whether where we live, you know, whether we rent out property to others, but as tenants, as owners, everybody's got a view of, of how it should be done better and decided to go away and create their own things. So in the PropTech space, there was this huge influx of, of solutions. And, and purely from a sustainable perspective, all of these can't can't exist in the same space. There's a lot of overlap. So for that reason alone, you're going to see um, um, uh, maturity. You're going to see consolidation. Uh, some of the smaller ones, uh, you know, will 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 want to join forces with the big ones. But at the same time, a lot of these solutions actually are point solutions that that focus on one particular area to make that area better. And a lot of them are aligned to actually will be much better sitting on top of a key platform. So it gets to a point where they, they, they might be linking to multiple platforms, but the way to springboard into the huge growth is to actually be acquired by one of those platforms or to actually really align themselves with one of those platforms. And that's why you start to see those partnerships come through or the m activity come through. That side, when you look at it from the investment perspective, uh, you've got, on the one hand, you've got the, the big incumbents in the space who, who again, 
you know, there's new solutions coming out. They're not as agile as some of the smaller ones. They're in a really good place to be able to say, do you know what? We can't develop this ourselves in the same time frame that agile startup can. They find the best ones, the best of breed, the ones that gain the most traction, and they absorb those into their solutions. Um, on the pure investment side, you then have a huge amount of dry powder coming in from uh, the private equity space um, or, or the VC space at earlier stage, uh, where they, they, I wouldn't say they're moving from fintech, but fintech was a really good um, investment space for, for the past 10, 15 years. They naturally look at what the next one is. And because the whole property industry, as we, as we talked right at the start, is, is kind of coming over this curve of from where they were behind the curve in technology, then naturally those investors, those with the, with the financial means, are going to look at this and say, this is the next best place to invest our money. And because there's so much money coming into the, spe- into the space, again, you get investors looking to spend big bucks uh, in, in prop tech. Uh, so, and that, again, you know, causes a huge amount of, uh, of, of uh, movement and a huge amount of interest in, in the space. So it's, it's basically all lots of different things coming together. But without a shadow of a doubt, you know, the next year, the next couple of years uh, are going are gonna to uh, see much more M&A activity. And, I, and I'll just touch on, on, on one point on that. It's interesting when, when COVID started, well, actually pre-COVID, uh, people said that taking the US as an example where a lot of the investment comes from um, people said well at that point there were US elections on the horizon and the US was forecast some kind of downturn in the economy and people said well we're not sure what that's going to do to M&A what's that going to do to investment nobody knows but you know expect the downturn at some point and then COVID came along and we haven't seen any downturn and we haven't seen the multiples go down. They'll continue to go up. Nobody's talking about elections or economic downturns. It's just continued to, 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 to rise. And with COVID, people said to me, oh, Ben, what we're going to see is fire sales. A lot of these startups who can't uh, sustain themselves, they're going to run out of cash. They're going to put themselves up for sale. That's what you're going to be dealing with. And we didn't find that either. For the most part, the good ones got through it either with their VC help or on their own steam. Uh, what we did see was actually people who would have probably retired in 10 or so years who own nice little family businesses or, or their own bootstrapped businesses. They got through COVID the early stages, spent a lot of time putting their, uh, their, their house in order and getting people to work remotely, which was a huge amount of work for some of these businesses. And then they came to the table and said, gosh, we don't want to be doing this for another 10 years. And they looked to, to, to put the company up for sale earlier than they would have done. So it, 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 there's so many different things here in the mix. But when you put all of that together, without a shadow of doubt, m and activity is, is, is certainly still increasing. Um, there's a lot there in what you've said to unpack. Um, but starting with, say, things that that were forecast to impact financial performance that didn't, like, for example, COVID and and the US elections. And by the way, you know, obviously we would have seen the same across the general property market as well, you know, a similar thing expected to impact and didn't. In a way, is that artificial? You could say it, but at the end of the day, the financial markets rely a lot on on what's going on in the wider economy and the political situation. So is it artificial? You can't argue that it is because it's not a direct impact on property or on tech. But at the end of the day, it does influence, and generally speaking, it didn't influence us when COVID came along, it seemed to throw out all the rules. But even aside from that, 
what it did show us is that the, the prop tech space is more resilient than other investment spaces at the moment. And you see that in the multiples and you see that in, in the MA activity. So regardless of actually MA is quite healthy generally in the world, tech MA is generally even more healthy than regular MA. And actually prop tech MA is and I say the same for fintech is is really, really healthy. And actually when you start to break down prop tech, construction tech the multiples are even higher. So it's it very much in this wider prop tech space, regardless of what else is going on in the world, this one seems to be not just resilient, but actually a really, really good place to, to be investing and, and uh, uh, you know, to, to be putting people's money. It occurs to me that um, the type of prop tech and construction tech providers that you're referring to there are the ones that already had the support of some VCs on all of the the global VC reporting that we've seen for 2020 and for 2021 all indicate that VCs were putting more money into companies that they had already invested in but they weren't investing in as many new companies so actually in a way it might have even propped up some of the larger or longer established I'm not even going to say better but longer established players and that might have actually locked out some of the earlier stage startups um to some degree yes but we have to remember that VCs generally go in uh, to any investment knowing that they're likely going to put in money afterwards either because they want to or because they have to no VC ever puts in uh well no VC can ever afford to write one check and think then they're going to have to write a check to the same company again so that that happens anyway um but but just a natural course of, of reaction is when something like COVID comes along and nobody knows what the future is going to hold so they have to pause on investment because they don't know which way the markets are going to go even if it is venture even if it is high risk there still is a little bit of science and they're actually understanding where the market's going to go. And when something like COVID happens, you have to kind of step back and say, well, you know, we don't know where to put our money at this stage. What they can do is shore up the investments that they've already got. And that's what they started doing. But actually, it was only a very, very short period of time um, that, that we saw that on the MA side. On the VC side, it still t- took quite a while. And in some respects, it's not back to where it was. Uh, it might be financially, but if you look at the individual VCs, some of them are still not investing uh, in the way that they were investing before. Some are. What we're actually seeing in terms of all the money is actually a lot more VCs coming into the space and a lot more people, a lot more organizations investing in the space. But, you know, the VCs who were there in the space, not all of them back up to full capacity. On the M&A side, very, very quickly, I think there was probably a Q1, Q2 of uh, 2020 where people didn't really do very much. And that was primarily because they were trying to get the house in order and had a different focus. But very quickly, already by the summer that year, they already got strategically back to the table and said, great, let's bring these projects back on. And and since then, the M&A still continue uh, to, to drive forwards uh, very, very quickly and with, with really good multiples. So, you know, the, the I would say the VC world was actually a bit more cautious than the M&A world. Okay, that's an interesting one because I hadn't seen the stats on that. So that's interesting, but it's also might be quite heartening to prop tech and construction startups and scale-ups at the moment. 93.9, Dublin South FM. Last year, I reached out to you, not in my capacity um, to get you to join the show, which which I had done previously anyway, but more about PropTech Ireland and the startups that we're dealing with. Um, there was an appetite for companies to be acquired. And it was the first time we've seen that at any significant scale 
since 2015 when we started. Um, so for really what I'd love to do is get some value for uh, prop tech founders, construction technology founders who are listening in today and who are thinking that an M&A might be the right path for them. Can you, yeah. you know, what would be, is is there such thing as kind of an early stage checklist that you would run through with a founder to see, is this the right path? Um, there are. First of all, I would say the right path um, is, is not necessarily the description I'd use because at the end of the day, people have different goals for a business and some people have no goals. And I know a lot of people talk about you have to start a business knowing what your exit is. I don't actually subscribe to that view. I think you can start a business knowing that you're enjoying what you're doing and it's a really great business and you'll see where it goes. Um, but but it, there are better times and 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 worse times for looking at the M&A scene, scene and when I say better or worse, I mean easier or harder. So you can set a business at any stage. Um, if you're selling a business that doesn't have the right level of traction, um, then then obviously that's going to be a harder sell. If you're selling a business that doesn't have a full team, um, it isn't really a functioning business, fully operational, that's much harder. Like the, the other end of the spectrum is if you're selling a business that's got tens of millions uh, of revenue and is really stable, then that's generally easier. And there's two real things to, to, to look at. What, what If you look at the appetite of people who are buying, they're either going to buy a business for a product, in which case the product has to be in a really good place, or they're going to buy, and this this is more the PE firms and the larger incumbents, or they're going to buy something that, A, is a good product, but B, gives them scale as well. So if they've got to deploy X amount of millions or hundreds of millions a year to as part of their strategy to grow business, they don't want to be faffing around with those that are not got the revenues or the profitability they want it's the same amount of effort or almost the same amount of effort to do a three million pound deal than it is to do a 30 40 100 million pound deal obviously not quite the same level of effort but you've got to decide where you're going to put your resources so scale does make a difference and the reason i say that is because the equilibrium the equilibrium of getting to really a point of where MA starts to become an attractive option is where You've seen you've got around about the million mark of recurring revenue for a SaaS business, and you and, and you've got a nice client base. You've got a decent business at that point that's running nicely. It's got traction. It's got a little bit of scale. It can it, it can improve somebody's top line. Um, it can potentially improve their bottom line if they've got profitability as well. But when you hit that magical number of a million ARR that becomes a different M&A proposition to something that's less than a million ARR. Um, and, and, and that's something really that, that uh, you know, I tell people the whole time when, they're, when they come to us and they're saying, you know, we're, we're about 200, 300, when's the right time to sell? That's a harder sell. When you've got low revenues, you're still trying to prove your way in the market. That, that, that's a harder sell. Um, in terms of things they should be focused on, client retention, something to be focused on, client concentration, something they should be looking at, their recurring revenue, uh, their gross margins. So, you know, how much of their business is recurring versus services. And then obviously profitability and growth. And you can sacrifice one for the other. That 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 makes sense. Um, but you can't sacrifice both. So you either have to have high growth, in which case your profitability will be low, or you can focus on profitability with lower growth. Both of those are attractive to different types of buyer profile. But certainly, you need to keep an eye on 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 both of those and and measure them. Um, so so generally, the 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 recurring revenue, 
customer concentration and customer attrition, customer acquisition cost, uh, as well as growth, revenue and scale, profitability, all of those are big areas that people should keep an eye on uh, as, as they do their monthly or, or quarterly uh, accounting. Is there any scope for M&As in the deep tech space where you haven't yet gotten to the point of traction, but the potential uh, would arguably be a lot more than the million ARR would be with further investment? I mean, or is that something that's firmly relegated to the VC space? Uh, there is, there is that, and there and there are examples of that as well. I mean, if you look at, uh, um, you know, the, well, without getting specifically names, but there there been companies that sold for tens of millions uh, without actually having sold anything yet. Um, but 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 definitely, you know, there is an argument. Say, if you've got something that's really really deep tech, that that could really help a business in the longer term, or could really generate. A huge amount of returns in the long term, then then absolutely you can sell at any stage. Um, but 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 generally speaking, you know, the, the, those are harder to value. Certainly for the, the the buyers of businesses, the regular buyers of businesses will have some kind of model. They'll have some kind of metrics. They need to see some some metrics. Other than other than that, they're just buying uh, something on a for for a product, which is a, a buy versus build strategy, which is purely based on how can I build this myself? How long is it going to take? But if it's really deep tech where they can't even build it themselves, you do have that. But again, it comes down to a different buy and a different profile. Some will like it. Some won't like it much, much harder to value. And the thing you need to remember at that point is that VC valuations are not M&A valuations. And that's a really, really important point. Uh, two things I will say to people who don't always recognize it is you might have had a VC tell you what you're worth. You might have had 10 VCs come in around and tell you what you're worth. That doesn't necessarily tell you what you're worth from an M&A perspective. And the other, and, 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 and the obvious reason for that is VC is, is, is risk. You know, they're going after 10, sometimes more businesses of which 10 or 20%, one or two of those, they hope to really be the big stars and the rest will be mediocre or fail, but they're spreading the risk. Anyone acquiring business is not spreading risk. They, that has to perform. And the M&A um, valuations are very, very different to VC. The other um, thing to remember that people often forget is there's no real correlation as to what you put into a business as to its value. So sitting at a table and saying, well, I've put 10 million pounds into this business and I've got a development team of 50 people working on this and it's costing me a million pound a month. So therefore I must be worth X. That's not the way it works. The only worth what somebody's prepared to pay for your business and the amount that you've invested into your business or are investing currently into your business isn't, isn't really going to affect your, your valuation. A um, quarter of a century ago, when I was an undergraduate, I remember learning around about M&As and they were, you know, one of the key drivers at that time was always seen as geography, you know, this this attempt to get into a new space. But with the increased um, digitization of real estate, how important is geography? Uh, I mean, access to markets has arguably never been easier. Yes, but there's still very, very different types of markets, particularly within property where there's compliance legislation and all those kind of things. So if you have a tool that that's a, a point solution that can be run from anywhere, then absolutely, you know, penetrating the market is, is much, much easier. But in terms of the really core underlying 
systems that could be financial, they could be compliance systems and all of those, then then markets do make a big difference. And there still is a big push for markets. One of the one of the key drivers for the, the large incumbents buying uh buying uh, up companies is, is access to a new market. Uh, is really key for them, um, you know, adding top line, adding bottom line, or adding new tech. But certainly on the core technologies, on the core, on the on the, on the backbone products, um, where where they're running the whole business and the ERP systems, markets still are a big difference. And you know, you can see that by you see a lot of the US companies investing in the UK or buying up UK companies. They then go buy an Australian company or a New Zealand business, Singapore or Hong Kong. You, you don't see necessarily running to France and Germany, even though those are huge markets. And the reason for that is because Australia, New Zealand, Southeast Asia, APAC, those areas are much more akin to, to the UK in terms of regulation and compliance. So it makes sense. They understand it. They can, they can do that. Trying to buy business in, in, in uh, Germany or France it gives you access to a whole new market, but the solutions are very, very different. So uh, absolutely, there, there still is a big difference when it comes to to, to larger solutions uh, in the market. And, and and market share is definitely a big reason why people uh, do look to acquire uh, other businesses. But actually, when we look at the value of businesses, how many markets they're in does make a difference. So somebody who has a home market we might get uh, one multiple if they if they are actually in the in, in across Europe and in the Nordics and in the US or North America and, and then you know they might be uh, you know Southeast Asia as well. The more markets they're operating in and the more they've cracked the different uh, compliance and regulatory issues, definitely increases their value. Okay, and you mentioned um, in terms of assessing uh, assessing technologies for M and A, you're looking at. Uh, you're looking for a full team. What does a full team look like across the prop tech and, and construction technology? Um, what, I, what I mean by that, and that's, um, I think, probably on, on my mind because we've had a few of those that come in the last week in inquiries, is where, where people where people say, well, actually, what I wouldn't do is sell my product, but I want to take some of the key guys with me because I want to work on something new. That's a much harder sell. If people are going to want to absorb a new technology because it's new, it's whizzy, it's sexy, it's it's something that, that they can't do themselves, they don't want to be left holding the product without the right support. So there's no real, you know, how many people do I need and what does the team look like? But but we are seeing quite a bit uh, from early stage companies where they come in and say, you know, we built the product, it works, we've got a nice new bunch of clients, we now want to move on and do other things. Can we find somebody to buy the product and try somebody to buy a product without the right people to direct it is is really really tough. Ben, you've been really generous with your time. Thank you so much, and I appreciate it. Um, I couldn't let you go today without asking for again the PropTech and construction technology providers um, in Ireland uh, and beyond. Can you give us any insight into what the appetite is? Um, for 2022, 2023, are there particular sectors or providers within sectors that are on on your list, your wish list for the next uh, year? Um, I, I would say on the commercial space, access control is 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 really really hot at the moment. Um, tenant engagement, tenant experience across the board, whether it's residential uh, or commercial, it's, it's really, really hot at the moment. Um, and I would say that that data is, in some respect, a little bit early, but people are, are taking a sharp look at it. So those in the data space uh, should certainly keep doing what they're doing and, and put their head above the parapet later on this year.
are startups in your opinion and scale-ups are they are they doing a good job at getting themselves ready to become acquisition targets or what do they need to be doing um some are some aren't that, that that's fair to say what what do they need to be doing they need to be getting in touch with the right people who can help them before they decide to sell, not at the time they want to sell. So yes, you can go to an M&A advisory firm and say, we want to sell the business now, but you're not necessarily in the best position. What should they be doing? They should focus on some of the things that we talked about earlier in terms of those, uh, you know, looking at where they might fall down in some of those metrics and, and make sure that they're driving towards those better metrics. But I would say that it's always helpful to keep in touch with M&A advisors, M&A brokers, private equity firms, people who reach out to you and are interested in your business, always take a meeting with them, understand who they are, understand what they like about it, keep an eye on all of that kind of stuff. Don't don't look, don't go to somebody at the time you want to sell, go to them well in advance. And I have a million other questions I could put to you, but I think maybe the most appropriate thing is to take in questions from our prop tech and construction technology providers and maybe at another date in the future, you might be generous enough to go through some of those so we can answer some specifically. Yeah, always happy to take questions, always happy to, to spend time uh, uh, either with with individuals or, or with you on the show and, and, and uh, answer specific questions. Super. That was Ben Lerner, Managing Director at Lerner Associates. And that's it from us this week in Property Matters on Dublin South FM. You can get in touch with the show on social media at iProperty Radio or by emailing hello at iPropertyRadio.com. My thanks to Luke Delaney and Peter Rice on sound. We'll be back at the same time next week. From myself and all the team, stay safe.